This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Indigenous land. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Ozpol Snack Pod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with plenty of memes to help you wash it down. Uh, we're also the official podcast of the Ozpol Shitposting Facebook group. My name's Noon, and with me is my co-host... Hey, what's up? Uh, my name is Zach Snack. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. And extra special welcome backs to Liam and May, our new patrons who signed up uh, to support the show on our Patreon. So they're going to get access to a new uh, bonus monthly episode, sorry, a new monthly bonus episode and some other cool shit like our Discord. So if you like the show, hop onto our Patreon. Uh, but there's actually something else exciting happening this week, Zach, uh, which is that you're appearing on another show. Yeah, I'm making my first ever guest appearance on another podcast uh, over at Not Good Enough, our good friends who uh, hosted Noon as well yeah. uh, a few weeks back. So they've given us both our first guest spots on another very show. Exciting. Which is very yeah. generous of them. Mm. Yeah, considering that neither of us have any qualification whatsoever to be uh, called on <laughs> as experts to discuss politics at all, other totally. than. That's what we do with our time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, we'll, I'll, you know, check the socials for the link for that later if you're interested Share it in all checking this it week, out. Yeah. Um, but enough about us. Let's talk news. You have an entree for us, Zach. I do. I do. Um, so the Queensland state election is coming up next weekend. That's on the 31st of October. And basically, uh, the campaign has been an endless parade of extremely silly shit, lots of really dirty politics. And just absolutely horrible policies. Uh, oh, so good. I thought I'd just do uh, just a quick sort of wrap up, mm -hmm. I guess, of um, uh, <laughs> the funny things that have popped up on my feed about this election over the last few weeks. So uh, voters have a, a great choice between the two major parties, obviously. On the one mm -hmm. hand, you've got Labour, led by Anastasia Palaszczuk, who have promised uh, 2,000 new cops and more coal mines. And on the great. other hand, you've got the Liberals led by Deb Frecklington, who have promised to lock up more Indigenous kids and also probably also more coal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so good to um, be able to choose between such distinct political organisations that have will have such different impacts on, on, on the country. It's a blessing to live in such a vibrant democracy. Mm. Um, the, uh, this Indigenous kids locking up thing, it, I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. The Liberal National Party have pledged to introduce a curfew for children in Cairns and Townsville, It'll be from 8 p.m. for kids that are 14 and under and from 10 p.m. for kids that are 15 to 17 years old with a $250 fine for every time a kid is picked up by the cops on the streets after those hours. And I probably don't have to tell you, but considering yeah. where it's targeted and the already existing racist nature of policing in mm -hmm. Australia, this is obviously aimed at Indigenous kids yeah. and Indigenous community leaders have been like, hey, this is extremely fucked and you shouldn't do this. Um pretty cooked to see a government just 
campaigning on pretty much naked, straight up, out and out racism in 2020. Normally, I feel like the liberals tend to try to couch things at least a little, like one or two degrees of separation. But this is well, very I'm not much sure about like, that. Remember, the federal liberals this week have been talking about how we need the white Australia policy back again, uh, like the the like English language requirement that was specifically that's a like, good point rigged in order to exclude all brown people or, and black people mm. from the country. So yeah, I. All racism all the time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised uh, by the non-racist <laughs> policies. <laughs> of which there are few. few. Hmm. Um, so the Libs have actually been polling pretty well initially, um, and even a, uh, ahead of Labour, by, uh, according to some polls at certain points. But then Deb Frecklington was referred to the election watchdog by her own party, uh-huh. um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so this is that they were worried that she'd possibly violated fundraising laws because she went to some events that were hosted by property developers, um, which she insists weren't fundraisers, um, and its developers are banned from making political donations in Queensland. Um, and then she uh, she was like, "Yeah, these were, these weren't fundraisers," but then she got a b- bunch of donations from people who were at those events. Um, none of them were actually developers, yeah. but it still doesn't look very good. Yeah, I heard this interview on ABC this week with a guy who is a former Liberal Party fundraiser, and he was talking about this, and he was like condemning it strongly. And the journalist was like, but you were a Liberal, liberal Party fundraiser, weren't you doing all of this shit? And he was like, yeah, well, look, it's definitely a case of poachers become a ranger, but, um, you know, it's still bad. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I found that amusing, even though, fuck that guy. Uh, but also, yeah, fuck Deb Franklinton and the Liberal Party for getting these um, dodgy donations. It does seem extremely dodgy, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the other uh, upsetting features of this campaign has been the uh, extremely shit level of discourse around uh, women's issues and feminism in general, um, both Palaszczuk and Frecklington have been asked point blank at various points on the campaign trail whether or not they identify as a feminist. Mm-hmm. Palaszczuk's response was, if a feminist is about believing in equality, absolutely. Hedging it slightly there, yep. Frecklington said, I identify as a female who wants to get Queensland working again, um, which uh-huh. just, re- <laughs> just really killed me. Um and uh, there was another really <laughs> hilarious line, well, hilarious and awful line from um, Frecklington, which kind of which just reminded me so much of the Liberal Party's uh, "Women Use Roads" mm. argument um, from uh, Budget Week, which uh, the, the LNP in Queensland have promised to create 150,000 new jobs, and Frecklington was asked how many would be created in female-dominated industries, given that those are the industries which have been hit hardest by COVID. Um, and her response was, you know what I love about females? They can do whatever they want to do. Which, like, on some level is true, and on another <laughs> level is absolutely not the case, right? Like, they can't get elected to parliament to the same degree, and they can't earn the same income as a man mm. working the same job as them. Uh, you know, it's a whole lot of things, mm. anyway. Yeah, the yeah, the, the like... Co-opting feminist logic to explain away the fact that you haven't actually done anything to empower women is um, some real galaxy brain conservative shit. And that the whole, like, conservative response to the virus has been to, like, screw women and make them take the the brunt. Anyway, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, so the, the, the other in note, notable thing about this uh, state election in Queensland is that the Greens are in with a pretty good shot at getting a couple more seats. They've currently got one. Um, 
But uh, yeah, if they were to get pick up those seats, that would probably give them the balance of power, considering that Labor only have a two-seat majority at the mm-hmm. moment, and this whole thing is looking pretty uh, like it could go either way at this stage. Um, they're, they're going to be given a boost by the Liberal National Party's put Labor last strategy, which is yep. apparently controversial within the party. But yeah, they've um, basically the the state LNP office has put out a directive saying, yeah, everybody needs to preference Labor absolutely last in every electorate. Interesting. Um, the the best shot that the Greens have at a new seat is in South Brisbane, where the Greens candidate Amy, Amy McMahon is polling pretty strongly against establishment Labor candidate Jackie Trad, who is the former deputy premier and has just been like plagued yeah. with scandals, uh, was uh, investigated and cleared, to be fair, by two uh, crime and corruption commission investigations. Um, Listeners may also are- be aware of the ongoing uh, Mean Girls, Fugly Slut related discourse about this particular seat, which I don't think we need to get into particularly. But um, yeah, if you've seen no, that on Left Renewal, 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 that's these guys. Yeah. Yeah, the, not good enough last week went into a bit more detail oh, cool. about this. Um, so you can get a bit more of a, a detailed breakdown about it there. But basically, um, because Labor is threatened in this seat by the Greens, yeah. they've been running one of their customary dirty political strategies, which is to try and bully young volunteers, especially women, out of politics by flaming them for social media posts that they've made. And in this case... They are very deliberately, disingenuously misinterpreting mm. a Twitter post from a Greens volunteer, which was quoting Mean Girls, and the Labour Party has tried to twist it to make it sound like this quote was being directed directly at Jackie, Jackie Trad and calling yeah. her a, quote, fugly slut. Whereas uh, quite which is not at all... The in, volunteer yeah. was calling the Greens that as a yes. joke about how Labour was treating the Greens. But Exactly. Anyway... Yeah, deep like deeply disgusting, filthy politics. Um, uh, really, really uh, ugly stuff from the Labour Party here. And uh, yeah, it's been making my blood boil for the last week. Um, uh, I had a bunch of other stuff here, but we're running out of time. Yep. Um, so there, there's plenty of other hilarious shit going on, including friendly Geordies running a troll farm, f- um, <laughs> uh, running interference for Labour, um, basically making memes trying to convince boomers that voting Liberal equals voting for the Greens. Clive Palmer has put almost $4 million into Clive Palmer's United Australia Party through his company Mineralogy, while also the Australian Electoral Commission is moving to deregister <laughs> his party federally. Um, the Catter Australia Party and One Nation are like relatively strong electoral forces in Queensland as well. Yeah. Qatar Australia Party currently has three seats in Queens in the Queensland State Parliament, which um I found fucking surprising. Yeah, so, I'm pretty sure two of them are actual catters as well. Yeah. As Bob and his boy. Yeah. That's a high ratio of catters in the Australian Parliament. <laughs> in the Queensland Parliament yeah. rather. Um uh, yeah, but look, the last thing I wanted to just touch on here was just to mention a couple of the things that the Greens are taking to the election. Yep. Um they're running on a platform of basically massively raising mining royalties to pay for some uh, cool. policies that we're bringing, including free school lunches, cool. free hospital parking, and a big, big increase to public housing. Uh, their particular uh, campaign promise is to build 200,000 new homes by 2050, which is, cool. Um, uh, yeah, a great policy, whether or not it's necessarily super realistic that it's something they'll be able to get through. Also, just quickly to reiterate a point that I made last week about the inherently problematic nature of using ill-gotten mining gains from stolen land to fund socially progressive policies. Um, we had a bit more of an in-depth chat about that last week. Um, 
but I guess while the mining industry exists and is still going to be stealing wealth from First Nations people, critical support for the Greens trying to use some of that money for social programs. For sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, that's a bit of an overview of some of the cook shit that's been happening with that election. And um, hopefully, well, we'll we, we will know a little bit more next weekend. Thanks for that, Zach. And while we're on the topic of uh, shitty, depressing elections, um, we've got a You Fucked Up. You Fucked Up. And this time, the, the people who fucked up was every resident of Perth. Um, <laughs> because you may remember a few weeks ago, we discussed one Mr. Basil Zempelas. Uh, Zach, Zach talked about him. Zempelas? Yeah. A candidate yeah, for Zempelas. Zempelas. Um, a candidate for Perth's council. And he has, unfortunately, been elected mayor on a platform of rounding up the homeless. Um, which I wish yeah. that was an exaggeration, but no, it's literally like every interview with him is like, yeah, we're going to get rid of the homeless. We're going to deal it with the homeless problem. basically seems to be his only policy. Like, yeah. we discussed last week how difficult it is to find out exactly what local ele- local council election candidates are, yeah. like what their platforms are. But yeah, he's pre- that's it, basically the only major thing I've been able to find out about what he wants to do. Well, he's also Other definitely more famous. accessible than the average local council candidate because he's also a talkback radio host. Um, and he said that he intends to keep that job, which I can't wait to see how that goes. I can absolutely see that being a talk show radio host is a huge boon in the campaign. But then, A, it gets in the way of doing your work every day, and B, people who are mad at you are going to call you up on air. And, like, there's no way you can ethically perform your job as a talkback radio host not that i imagine he was doing that anyway but like if he was trying to be a good ethical journalist there's no way he could do that while also being the mayor so very Mm, funny yeah well generous to even assume that the idea of doing either job ethically has entered into his mind that's a great point he's very clearly put that to the to the side he's not just a talkback radio host he also commentates sport on channel seven and and was a former host of weekend sunrise and still Mm, pops mm. up on the channel seven morning shows yeah yeah who gave him a bunch of free press as well. Yeah, and we went into more detail about it in... Um, in his we'll, vic- we'll put a link to that episode, yeah. His victory party, I'm pretty sure, was uh, just like him and Kerry Stokes and like a couple <laughs> of other extremely rich people. So, yeah. Um, and look, his, his deputy mayor is a woman named Sandy Angie. Um, and I, I put this photo in here, Zach, because I found it extremely funny. Um, yeah, but I've I showed, read your note. My, I showed it to my I housemates and they were disagree like... disagree. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I said was... There's this amazing photo and they look extremely related or like someone has photoshopped their faces. And I showed this to my housemates and they were like, oh no, are you going to do an entire segment on the podcast about your own face blindness? Um, and I was like, no, but I will let Zach make fun of me on air for this. <laughs> but I think they they both have this like stunned mullet look of just like gazing out to the camera and weird nose. Anyway, whatever. They're weird, weird looking couple of people, but uh, apparently they don't look the same. So, so disregard that. They they look nothing alike. But um, I I think that we can definitely agree that they both suck. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Great. Okay. Uh, that's the kind of hard hitting political analysis <laughs> that you come to Australia's foremost political nobodies for. It's true. Um. Thanks for running us through that noon. Uh, now we're going to move on to our First Nations story. And unfortunately, again this week, we have to talk about another Indigenous death in custody. Um, so a heads up that this story does contain references to Indigenous people who have died. And we will put time codes uh, in the show notes if you want to skip this story. 
Uh, so this week, the New South Wales Coroner's Court is beginning its inquest into the death of Nathan Reynolds, an Anaiwan Gamilaroi man who died in the minimum security prison in 2018. He's 36 years old and was a, a father of one. Uh, and he died just one week before he was expected to be released. Uh, Reynolds died of an asthma attack, but according to evidence that's been given at the coronial hearings this week, uh, the prison's response to his calls for help were extremely slow. Uh, he started to have trouble breathing. He called the guards' office for help over an intercom. And three minutes later, another inmate called the guards mm. being like, come and get help. Uh, the guard told the court that uh, an ambulance actually wasn't called for Reynolds until more than 20 minutes after he initially called for help. Shit. Um, uh, and there's plenty of testimony from various inmates basically saying that the guards like were in no hurry, that they took their time, uh, getting to him, uh, that there are protocols in place that meant that the guards couldn't get to the area where he was without being in a group of three. So they had to wait for the guards to come sure. from other areas of the prison. Um, and the sort of main thread of testimony, um, uh, from the coverage that I read was the, the the evidence given by another inmate, Jeremy Prio, who said that things got worse when the on-duty nurse finally arrived. So wow. she was not on site initially, meaning that it took her more than 10 minutes to arrive after she was called, which was only once the guards actually got on scene, which took ages in the first place. And Priya was helping Reynolds. Uh, when he started to have trouble breathing, uh, he put him in the recovery position mm -hmm. on his side, encouraging him to breathe, saying, quote, I would say to him, mate, take a breath for me. And he would do that every time. He would take a deep breath in and one out. And that's how I knew he was still alive at that point in time. And he says that the nurse, when the nurse arrived, quote, the next thing I remember is her bent over the top of Nathan, slapping him and shaking him what and telling fuck? him to wake up. Well, he says that the nurse claimed that Reynolds was experiencing a drug overdose, uh, which I'm not a doctor, but I don't think you should slap and shake people having an overdose either. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Not. It, yeah. I mean, it's pretty shocking. It's fucked. Um, yeah. One of the other guards asked the inmates whether Reynolds had taken anything, and Priya said to him, "How can you say that? You've just watched him have an asthma attack." Um, the autopsy found that Reynolds had been given naloxone, which is a drug usually given to people overdosing on opioids. So who's even actually treated, treated for as if an, he overdose. Had an overdose? Fucking yeah. Um, and. Prio finished out his testimony by saying, I was very distressed and distraught because I know that when the nurse came in, he was still alive. Mm. I believe that she just thought he overdosed on drugs because he was a criminal, he was in jail, he was a junkie. That's so horrifying that the medical professional makes things actively worse and was probably, like, single-handedly right. most responsible for this death. And, like, yeah, I don't know. Just, I don't well, have a conclusion and, to draw it's, there. It's it, just horrifying how little people care about inmates. It's shocking, and the ambulance eventually arrived only, you know, almost an hour after Reynolds first called for help. Mm. Uh, he was pronounced dead a half an hour later, um, and the hearings are ongoing. But as you say, Noon, I mean, the the the, the neglect um, and prejudice displayed mm. by the medical staff is is shocking. But this is a pattern that we've seen with indigenous deaths in custody, yeah. that it's often combined with a form of medical neglect. Mm. We saw um, Sherry Fisher Tilbury, who died in Brisbane Watch House last month. The police attributed that death to natural nat natural causes, but we know that the health, proper health checks were not were conducted. Done. 
Um, Tane Chatfield, who we've spoken about in a previous episode, who died in prison in New South Wales, was put in a cell by himself after experiencing seizures, coming back from the hospital and not having his condition properly reported to the medical staff at the prison. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. And I think you're, you're, you're totally right to draw this connection. And it, it's so important to remind ourselves like the various ways in which genocide is still being done and like that these deaths happen through neglect not just by like active murders or whatever but that in this case i think it's not a case of medical neglect it's a case of like uh medical violence or something it was the mm. it was the guards mm. who did the neglect and probably they could have changed the outcome if they had gotten their shit together but mm. the nurse didn't neglect it the nurse murdered him with a a, a drug that he wasn't supposed to have and by assaulting him while he was having an asthma attack like i mean it's probably not legally murder or whatever i'm being hyperbolous there but like not much but like yeah it's not neglect it was assault and battery and um sure and yeah, it's anyway, the same uh you know we know that indigenous people are turned away you know even not mm, in a carceral setting mm. they go to hospital presenting with medical issues are not believed or turn, turned away or yeah. one way or another not given the treatment that they need. And so the, the the inherent racism of both the medical system and the carceral system kind of combine to, to create this extremely dangerous environment for First Nations people. Um, so, the yeah, the, like I said, those uh, hearings are ongoing. They're going to continue into next week. Um, but I just wanted to finish out here with a quote from his sister, from Nathan Reynolds' sister, to Leah Reynolds, she says, Anyone that met him, he just lit up the room. He was a jokester. All the kids loved Nathan. Nathan would take all the kids out, his nieces and nephews, stuff like that. He had a heart of gold. He should be here. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's horrible that so often this is what our First Nation stories are about. But it's yeah, it's what we've got to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. We need to face it when it happens. Mm. Um, all right, well, why don't we move on to our next segment, which is a bit lighter, but still pretty horrible. So It was the best of takes. It was the blurst of takes. You stupid monkey. <laughs> and, yeah, so this week we're rewarding the blurst take to Bob Brown, uh, former leader of the Greens Party, who did an Australian with, uh, sorry, who did an interview with the Australian newspaper this week, um, in which he said this. We're already using more than what the planet can supply, and we use more than the living fabric of the planet in supply. That's why we wake up every day to fewer fisheries, less forests, more extinctions, and so on. The human herd at 8 billion is the greatest herd of mammals ever on this planet, and it is unsustainable to have that growing. Um, <laughs> I can see you doing a bit of a yikes face there, Zach. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a bit like, I'm, sh I'm sure you're going to get into it, but uh, I don't know, it... it there's, he's clearly attempting to frame this overpopulation as a climate change issue idea in this kind of reasonable language, but in fact, it's a deeply fucked concept. I also think it's funny that he's like uh, the largest herd of mammals because obviously humans aren't herd animals. We are social animals, but we don't live in herds. We live in like family structures or like we're a political animal, maybe phrasing rather was than weird. a herd animal. But no, his, yeah. so I think he is trying to make the point that like, or sort of emotionally make the point that, you know, human society isn't above and beyond nature. We're all just animals and like we all are interacting with the environment and the mm. ecosystem and blah, blah, blah. But 
Fuck off, Bob Brown. And I feel like that sentiment was expressed <laughs> nicely by Kim Nolan, who made a meme uh, that they posted in Oswald shitposting this week of Bob Brown squatting in the forest and he's been crossed out and it says, no more Bob Brown. Society has progressed past the need for Bob Brown. Um, and there was a bit of uh, <laughs> We definitely of have. Yeah, yeah. We, we, definitely, definitely, I mean, we definitely... Yeah. Yeah. We he's don't been need the John. tree Tories anymore. Yeah. Um, the... The thing is that, like, this conversation comes up all the time, and in Ospol shitposting, a bunch of people were like, wait, but he's not wrong. Overpopulation is an issue. Um, and so I just wanted to spend a minute or two kind of responding to that. Um, the, yeah. And the the main counterpoint is that people in wealthy countries tend to have very few kids, but are also responsible for the vast majority of carbon pollution. Um, and there's this great uh, diagram that often goes around with a tweet that is like an... Um, it's like, I'm a ecological economist, but I never talk about population, and this is why, or something along those lines. And yeah, there's this, I think this that's graph. a Ken Joshi tweet, maybe. Could well be, yeah. Well, there, yeah. there was an article of that title that I think people in shared posts with the right, headline or whatever, but anyway, whatever. Um, so this is a diagram that shows you um, the like 10 percentiles, deciles, like the, the top 10% mm. of population down to the bottom 10% of population. And it shows how much carbon emissions they are responsible for. And so the top 10% of richest people in the world are responsible for 49% of carbon dioxide emissions, whereas mm. the bottom 10% are responsible for 1% of carbon emissions. And like, yeah, as I say, people in wealthy countries, very few kids, but the vast majority of carbon pollution. So population growth doesn't make sense as an explanation for why we have so much carbon emissions. And yeah. I, I often make this, uh, I mention this uh, statistic about um, people in poorer countries having a lot of children. I actually looked up the numbers again um, for this show so that I can cite mm. them again. So in 2018, Australia was the 12th largest per person carbon emitter in the world um mm -hmm. though several of those 12 are weird outliers they're like tiny little tourist islands or places like um the united arab emirates that something like 100 or like nearly 100 percent of their economy is based on fossil fuels um yeah. so we're probably more like ninth or tenth but whatever say 12th nigeria which is the country with the highest birth rate in the world of somewhere between five and six children per adult women, is 142nd in the world of carbon emissions per person, with a, mm. a per-person emission rate of 0 0.57 tonnes. So I'm not very good at arithmetic, but by my rough calculation, a Nigerian person would need to have 29 adult children for their family to have the equivalent carbon output of a single adult Australian with no children. Right, so they would need to have somewhere like five or six times more kids than they actually are having to match one childless Australian. So, yep. yeah, the issue maybe environmentalists should stop making this population argument now. Could we just put this to bed? Right, because it's bullshit. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. just total bullshit. Yeah, and like I, I, I do know that in the article Bob Brown kind of goes on to talk about how if you raise the standards of living in poorer countries that that naturally kind of depresses yeah. the birth rate yeah and so that's one that's right. positive like socially and economically positive way to do that but that is such a cooked white supremacist colonialist motivation for improving the quality of living for someone Absolutely. else's life you should it do also, it because they deserve well-being it, Not because, it all yeah it, it conflates two completely different arguments, and right. one of them is completely reasonable and the other is completely fucked. And the reasonable one is, like, 
women and everyone around the world should have access to birth control and education and bodily autonomy. And yes, the evidence does show that as like average income rises, children per person drops off. Um, and that's fine. And sure. But like, that has nothing to do with carbon emissions, more or less. Um, mm. So I don't really... As like, that's not an argument in favour of reducing population growth. That's just saying it will happen naturally as we improve people's standards of living. Right. Um, probably for most people. Yeah. yeah uh, it's absolutely. not actually an argument. Which is, which is why, like, you... Uh, like, it's what sort of irritates me so much about this uh, this population growth argument is that they're actually like a meaningful response to climate change does have to be a broader societal one and mm. globally kind of one that pulls people out of poverty and improves standards of living. Um, but instead you're kind of, it's sort of driving a wedge between those two concepts Yeah. Um, in a way that makes no sense. They need to like a strong uh, understanding of racial justice and equality needs to underpin any kind of effective, mm. meaningful mm. global action on climate and you like splitting apart those issues you're like you're shooting yourself in the foot as yeah. an environmentalist if that's the only thing which you care about which it shouldn't be you should also care about the fucking well-being People. of yeah. yes uh, it's not that humans. hard i don't think it, the, yeah exactly yeah. this is a, a side note as well but like population can and does impact climate change but only as a multiplier of per capita consumption right and so that's why in Australia we have like a relatively low total carbon emission because we have a small population, even though we've got a huge per capita consumption. But like America, yeah. for example, has both a huge. Um, and the other thing is that like consumption is a much bigger contributor to carbon emissions and it's much more ethically solvable. And we could do lots of unethical things to solve the climate change, but I don't think that is actually like it will deal with climate change isn't actually like a a whole argument against something like just for example we could kill half the population of every country or we could blot out the sun snowpiercer style or we could build a colony on mars that only the richest four percent of people could go to and everyone else could die on the fiery hellhole on earth or we could like oh we're already people. doing that one right well we're, we're already doing all of these elon uh, musk isn't like, go, trying to go to mars for fun yeah uh but like He's doing it to build a rich people bunker another unethical thing that we could do is let donald trump decide how many kids americans can have or whatever you know like i'm framing it as that because everyone already gets angry about china doing a well one child policy thing but then they're like but actually maybe we should do that too anyway <laughs> yeah it's an unethical thing it might but deal when with i do a really it i problem, crouch like, for a photo shoot in a forest which makes uh, it yes yeah yes yeah Okay, that's enough time spent on Bob Brown. Society has moved past the need for analysis of Bob Brown's shit takes. So why don't we move on to our next segment? <laughs> uh, yes, now it's time for... AC? AB. AC, AB. Uh, and I've got another quite dark story, um, unfortunately. Um, and I'll put a content warning at the top of this story for a discussion of uh, domestic violence. Um, so uh, I just wanted to talk about a piece that was published in the ABC this week, uh, written by uh, Haley Gleason, which is about domestic abuse committed by police. Mm. Um, so this article has data on the number of cops charged with domestic violence, and it's the right. first time that that uh, like a nationwide snapshot of this information has been put together. And I remember looking into this issue last year. I think it was for the show. And having to rely on either like state figures or figures mm. from overseas to get information about this, so it's um, great that this uh, these numbers are now available to us. Um, and the numbers show 
that there is a systemic problem with cops protecting each other from charges of domestic violence. Um, just to kind of paint a picture for you, of all family violence crime, 80% of alleged offenders were processed, which means, you know, arrested or charged or cautioned. Uh-huh. But for family violence involving police, 20% of alleged wow. offenders were processed. Uh, and that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, but I mean, quarters. this bears out... Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, this bears out exactly what uh, victim survivors have been telling us for years, as well as frontline mm. service workers, mm. that cops have each other's backs when it comes to domestic violence. Um, there are many cases when victim survivors have reported domestic violence by a cop and they are told, are you sure you want to do this? You could end his career. Uh, and we are talking overwhelmingly about male cops here, um, yep. if that needed saying. Um, Which also, but- like, not that it would matter if it was true, but it's basically not true that it affects their careers because most police unions have deals where people cops who get fired are, like, mandatorily rehired 12 months later and shit like that. So, anyway... Yeah, yeah. Uh, like aside from all of the informal and illegal protection that they have, they also There's have also... extremely strong formal and legal protection. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this attitude of like, "Oh, are you sure you want to report this?" Mm. or like, "Oh, I'm not sure. I really believe this is guy's my mate." You know, by cops obviously leads to the underreporting of domestic violence by cops. Mm-hmm. by victim survivors. Abusive cops will tell their partners that they've told everyone at the station that they're crazy, that other cops will never believe her over them, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and this article is full of uh, really disturbing and, and awful uh, examples of these kinds of abusive mm. relationships. And if you feel up to it, I definitely recommend going and reading the article, which we'll put a note to. I'm not going to go into the detail about any of these stories because um, I think that they're much better put in the article. But there was one case that I wanted to uh, just overview to give you a sense of the kind of stuff mm. that um, these partners of abusive cops go through. So uh, the, the article tells the story of one woman who went to the police with heaps and heaps of detailed evidence of her uh, police partner's violence and abuse, you know, with like documentation and diaries and all this kind of stuff. And mm. she was told... But she would get an urgent AVO against the cop. Weeks later, she got a call saying that she didn't have enough evidence and that because she'd sworn at her partner, the police had decided there was, quote, Fuck. mutual conflict. And as per police protocol, the cop was informed of the complaint against him. Fucking hell. And th- the article has a quote from the woman's support worker who said, because no AVO was issued... It just gave him a green light. He knows there will be no ramifications for his ongoing abuse, which is seriously affecting her mental health. He still taunts her, saying, you can contact the police all you Ugh. like. Look what happened last time. Um, and uh, the, the one other cooked thing that this article points out is that as a result of all these pressures that make it extremely unlikely that a cop will get uh, charged with mm. domestic violence, the stats show that police are less likely to be recorded as a respondent on a domestic violence order than the rest of the population, right? Because, as a respondent? Uh, that, so as in, like, somebody who uh, has, has been, involved been in accused it or, or yeah, yeah. yeah, there are mm. allegations of domestic mm-hmm. violence against them. And uh, the Queensland Police Service has tried to spin this as a positive. Of course. Saying, quote, the QPS Ugh. acknowledges that no domestic and family violence incident is acceptable, but the strong discipline and oversight regimes of the QPS results in police officers being 95% Ugh. less likely to commit a breach of domestic violence order when compared to the general population. That's so cooked. What the fuck? They, 
so twisted. Shit. So twisted. And you know the person Never who believe wrote it. that knew what they were saying, like, was Abs- a lie as well. There's Absolutely. no chance that was earnest, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, never believe anything the fucking cops tell you. Yeah. Um, we no everybody is too scared to report us for crimes. That and means when we they do, do no report crimes. us, we shut the investigation down. So if you look at the stats, you'll see that we do no crimes. Yeah. Um, and that you know the the article does have uh you know people kind of it's, uh, frontline workers and experts calling for reforms, such as uh for example an independent body uh that incidents you know, can be referred to. Whoa, whoa, whoa there, Zach. I heard the uh, Victorian police commissioner on radio a month or so ago, and he very firmly said that he he thought, you know, I, uh, this is in Victoria, but that, that the Victorians wanted police to be accountable for their own issues. They don't want to outsource their ethics, Zach. It has to be dealt with internally. Having an external body will actually make the police less ethical and accountable because it's not them doing it, you know? We all need to take care of ourselves, including the cops, Zach. Well, there's one part of that I agree with, which is that it probably won't, would, wouldn't make the police any better. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Probably likely. just... Yeah, anyway. So, yeah, go on. I mm. think what... I mean, yeah. We, stories like this lead me to one conclusion every time, which is mm. we just need to fucking abolish the police. I mean, they have yep. a systemic problem with the lack of accountability... Yep. In general, but specifically for domestic abusers, mm. there are, you know, I mean, these are people who are trained to use violence and act as the authority in any situation mm. that they're put in. Mm. It follows that they, you know, that this leads to family violence. And these are people, you know, who have access to weapons and databases full of personal information. They're in, they're, they are like, you couldn't, uh, like, as somebody who wanted to exert control and instill fear in your partner. Like you couldn't ask for a better situation than being a cop, basically. Yep. And you know we 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 know that cops will uh, happily disregard the law when it comes to accessing personal information. Yeah, citizens. yeah. As we saw with the the case of Neil Punchard in Queensland uh, a couple of weeks ago, who accessed the information of a, a victim survivor of domestic violence, and got her information and passed it on to her abusive ex partner. Yeah. 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 Um. And so, I mean, the the thing, the last thing I wanted to end on here is, you know, when when you have these conversations about uh, abolishing police, one of the very first things often mm. that comes up as a counter argument is, well, who's going to go and respond to reports of domestic violence? Yeah, I mean, this story tells you everything you know about everything you need to know about why that is a totally disingenuous argument. Mm. Mm. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll, like I said, I'll put a link to that story, and uh, if you feel up to it, yeah. I definitely recommend um, uh, reading through that one. Uh, but in the meantime, it's now time to move on. Shit post of the week. Yeah, that's the end of our um, heavy content for the week, thankfully. Um, but thanks for doing both of those difficult stories, Zach. I got all the fluff this week, which is great. Uh, and we had a great week for shitposts this week in the Oswald Shitposting Facebook group. There was some really good content. Um, and so we want to give a couple of shout-outs uh, to Chris Ritchie, who did a great thread of, um, uh, he posted a picture of Mark Knight, the Australian cartoonist holding, sorry, the, the, you know, Murdoch cartoonist holding up two Herald Sun newspapers, but he's blanked them out so that everyone could, uh, you know, meme, memeify them. Uh, which and that was a real did. good thread. Which they did, yeah. I, I made one that people liked. Why, why do they call it income tax cuts when you hot out, and hot the... out the eat tax? Yeah. 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 Um, um, I also liked, uh, <laughs> There was a party rockers in the house. 
tonight. Tonight, yeah, good that's one. a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and don't open dead inside. Um, don't dead. Yeah, don't open dead. Inside. Open inside. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks for that thread, Chris. Uh, did you want to shout out this particular one that you? Copy pasted that. Chris oh yeah, made, and, well, and so Chris did create the template generously for everybody, but um, he also, also made, a, made a couple of bangers of his own. And yeah. <laughs> uh, probably my my favorite one was uh, Mark Knight holding up one board that says, "Stop comparing everyone in the right to Nazis. You're devaluing the word. We're just conservatives." And the other is <laughs> a, the, a, the front page of the Daily Telegraph, which depicts Kevin Rudd and uh, Anthony Albanese as Nazis, the Nazis from. Um, Hogan's, Hogan's Heroes. Heroes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, very good. It's <laughs> good stuff. Uh, next up, shout outs to Alex Hartman, um, who made this excellent Bob Catter meme uh, about uh, Daryl Maguire and the tractor accidents running over his <laughs> The uh, multiple phones. tractor accidents. Yeah. So it's it's Bob Catter uh, doing his press conference. But I ain't spending any more time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a tractor runs over someone's data in southern New South Wales. <laughs> that, fabulous. Posted it just before 4.20. So, yeah, thank you for that Beautiful. One, All right. So this is from a friend, confidant, member of our inner sanctum, Holly, um, who... <laughs> <laughs> this is a really good one. Uh, she said, sorry, it's a bit late. I've been busy taking advantage of new infrastructure. And she's got this photo of, uh, I don't actually know what protest this is. Do you know? It's a, it's a, it's a 60s, 60s like, feminist women's lib. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hippie yeah. kind of. Yeah. And um, she's photoshopped some of the signs. So the one that's most prominent says, women of the world, use roads. Uh, and then another one, one next says, to it says, sisters of the... Use, Use roads. roads. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Um, yeah. Using her highly professional Photoshop skills there. Um, doing a great job. Yeah. Uh, and we had one other uh, shit post of the week, which this is a shit post of the week of our hearts. Um, when it's basically would make no sense to anybody who hasn't yeah, uh, uh-huh. been listening to the show. Um, <laughs> but this one was, is from Morgan Little. Um, <laughs> and it's a shout out to, uh, Coot's amazing potluck last week uh, where she was letting everybody know that they should vote one 3,000 wacky wailing inflatable tube guys. Um, Who, incidentally, and- Coot messaged me after that show, after the show went to air and was like, thanks for putting me up top, but I'm worried that people won't realize that that was actual research that was done. So, listeners, <laughs> that potluck was 100% verified scientific wow. truth. There was no jokes in there at all. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, please go on, Zach. Uh, and Morgan's posted uh, a, a Photoshop of a big wacky-waving wacky waving inflatable tube guy um, with a little pocket, and inside the pocket is a little snack pod toast icon, uh-huh. except with big dollar signs for eyes instead. <laughs> and the caption says, Everyone knows all wacky-waving inflatable tubes in Australia are part of the large geothermal conglomerate. And if you don't know about Big Magma... Now you know. What are you even doing? Um, yeah. Thank you, uh, thank you, Morgan, for that extremely niche in joke shit post, um, which deeply connected with us. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. All right, Zach. Now we've got a positivity corner. Positivity corner. We do, and you and I are both pretty cynical about the capacity for change of electoral politics, but also Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when you get a good result, look. From whence one can get it, from thence one must take it. Therefrom, one must take it. 
Uh, and this week, uh, <laughs> according to that maxim, uh, we thought it would be fun to point out that the Greens have done really well in the ACT elections. Uh, not state elections, territory elections, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, we, which we completely neglected to mention last week when I was like, mm. it's election season. And uh, there was one happening that I just, honestly, it just slipped right past me. To be fair, the ACT is very small. It's kind of like um, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a bit Canberra. Uh, but so the ACT has a unicameral system like Queensland. So they've only got one house of parliament, the Legislative Assembly. It contains 25 seats in total. And uh, the, with the elections just held, um, the votes have, were being counted as late as last night. And I got, uh, I checked the news at like 11.30 p.m., which I'm glad I did because um, otherwise I would have been wrong about the results. But the way that it's shaken out is that Labor has declared victory with uh, 10 members elected, nine for the Libs, and six for the Greens, or um, other, if you look at the ABC's tally, (laughs) uh, (laughs) which is... uh, Wait, are there any minors other than the Greens included in that, or all other is green? Okay. 10, 9, and 6. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. All seats yeah. accounted for. Good. <laughs> 19 to the major parties and 6 for, you know, other parties. Whoever it might happen to be. Yeah. The S in brackets. Um, <laughs> that's up from two Green members in the last legislative wow. assembly. So a, a huge, huge electoral spike. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was really close in a number of seats, um, but they uh, they managed to come out on top in, and dislodge several incumbents. Uh, and the other really, the other silver lining in the story uh, or the other positivity corner of this story is that the Libs got absolutely fucking smashed. They got the, they they received their lowest first preference vote in over ten years. Wow. Um. So there's going to be a leadership spill for the ACT Liberals triggered by this loss. Yep. Um. Alastair Coe, who's the current leader of the Libs, hasn't said yet whether he'll uh, contest the leadership. I mean, it's pretty hard to come back from an electoral loss like this. But I'm surprised that they would turf him out after all the amazing outreach work he's done. Um, I don't know if you've seen his content on Twitter over the last couple not. of weeks, but it's been incredible. There was the uh, the one where he set up a huge wall of cardboard I boxes see that. Oh, God. with the words cost of living written on them, and he smashed it down with his sledgehammer, which definitely got my blood up. And there was also the it was amazing because like, it actually it looked to me like I didn't realize it was cardboard at first. I was like, oh, they've got like a <laughs> like a brick wall or something. And then he hits it with the sledgehammer, and they kind of tumble away. And I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> there was also the amazing uh, photo mm. shoot of him wearing two boxing gloves, one labeled lower taxes, and the other one better services. Um, hilarious, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> So, look, he's probably on his way out, but we don't know yet. But uh, this is a good result because it means that Labor, they don't have an outright majority. They're going to need to govern with the Greens. They're going to need to form government with them. And it's possible that Greens could even take some positions in the ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Greens went to the election with a pretty strong platform. Um, They were promising to phase out gas power and introduce community-scale batteries and microgrids, which Mm -hmm. I think is all pretty cool. Uh, They also want to uh, strengthen mental health support services, Uh, although a caveat on that is some of that is cop-related, which, uh, gross, stop it. Um, But uh, one of the things that I think that uh, Ospol Snackpod listeners will really appreciate is that they are planning to ban landlords from evicting tenants without cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's fucked, obviously, that that is a thing that is allowed at all. Yeah. And at the moment, only Victoria and Tasmania actually require a hell? landlord to provide a reason for turfing someone out so and fun. making them literally homeless. Uh, yep. Pretty cool country. 
Um, but the Greens are doing their bit in the ACT to try to um, make that, you know, uh, rig the game slightly less in favour of landlords, mm, which mm. is always good in our book. Uh, yeah, so I thought that was, you know, it's positive. Yeah. I think that we can say that that's a positive result. And uh, it's not the only good result for a Greens party in the last week. Yeah, before we get on to... I, I, love, I love the segue, but I just wanted to say I have an uh, orthodox conservative uh, young liberal cousin who lives in Canberra, works for the oh, government. Great. And um, I remember hearing this result and being like, huh, I bet he's sad and hungover right now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's that another guy. little positivity corner. Yeah, I like him fine personally. He's, he's a lovely guy. He's just terrible person all right but as you were saying zach yes there there has been another um progressive election result that the greens have appreciated um but this yes, one was over the it ditch it just came and- through we just reached 420 twitter followers oh shit <laughs> nice <laughs> <Ayla> Mao. um <laughs> speaking of which speaking of which yeah we're having more weed brownies this this week for mains uh because it was new zealand election and the big news is that jacinda won huge uh it's the biggest win for any New Zealand party ever since the new electoral system was introduced in 96. Um, yeah, it has just been absolutely huge. And I've got a tweet here from Ash Stewart on Twitter, Ashley Stewart. Uh, new Zealand, an overwhelmingly female group of 22 new Labour MPs showing up for work. Also, New Zealand's first African MP and Sri Lankan MP. Labour to have more women than men in caucus for the first time. Largest new intake into Parliament since 1935. And the largest Labour caucus ever. A- and, again, the largest, the best result that any party has ever had under their current electoral system. Um, pretty huge. It's pretty huge. And the other, th- so there was this election going on, but there were also two referendums on, or referenda, on recreational cannabis and euthanasia. Um, and they're both non-binding, which means the government doesn't actually have to accept the result either way. And they're also not pass-fail like in Australia. They just get the result and they're like, okay, 60% of people are into it or not or whatever, and then they can decide what to do. Uh, and the it actual like they have result- a different definition of referendum than we do here. Yeah, well, so New Zealand doesn't actually have a constitution, interestingly. Um, and so all constitutional reforms can be enacted by uh, an act of parliament. And so there's not actually any, like, constitutional mechanism of a referendum. Mm, there there gotcha. are some pieces of legislation that they need a 75% majority of parliament to change, I'm pretty sure. But, like, mm, okay. yeah, so this, it, this is basically... Uh, and the other thing is that they can make referendums binding if they want, right? So they can legislate that they will act on the result of a referendum, gotcha. but they haven't done it with these ones. Um, so they're more like plebiscites, or they, they would be called out plebiscites the population. in Australia. How exactly, do we feel yeah. about weed and euthanasia? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, uh, weed and death 2020 is what everyone's been saying. Uh, yeah, so um, Whedon Death 2020, actual results will be out on the 30th because uh, they're busy doing the election count and then the like final, final, final results will be out on the 6th of November. Um, so yeah, I, uh, we thought that we would take this opportunity to discuss weed legalization and other drug legalization because you know we need to get those Google search hit clicks. Um, as far as the New Zealand referendum, <laughs> um, I'm actually like really not qualified to comment on how the referendum is going to go. Oh, and by the way, I'm basically not going to talk about euthanasia at all. It's just about weed. Um, but the death is also on the menu. But yeah, so today I'm just talking mm. about, about weed. Uh, my hunch is that the weed referendum will pass. Um, interesting. And I, d- I think it won't. Right, interesting. Um, yeah. Polling has like slipped massively over the last couple of months. Well, the like polling has been wildly inconsistent um, to a degree like w- majorly beyond the normal margin of error. Um, yeah. And like the... 
Yeah, the outliers are massive outliers, and the non-outliers are really like <laughs> unclear what they what the outcome is. Um, and also, like the yeah, the the pollsters who got the best, the most accurate result for the election didn't actually poll about the referendums for some reason. So anyway, um, okay. So I really think of New Zealand as a stoner country. It is. Is it, it just is... because that's where Fat Freddy's drop is from? Maybe <laughs> that's, that's why I make that connection. Well, yeah, a lot of New Zealanders smoke weed. The numbers are hard to find, but somewhere between 50 and 75% of citizens of New Zealand have tried it, and something like 15 to 20% smoke regularly, uh, wow. which make them one of the highest nations on Earth, along with Australia, who have very similar percentages. Say, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, like pound for pound, uh, Australia, I think, is one of the world's leaders, uh, leading consumers of weed. So um, but, yeah, so... So, um, one, so to speak, yes. Um, so... The re- one of the reasons that I think that it's likely to pass is this like unforeseenly huge progressive result for the election itself. So not only did Labor do well, and remember they're significantly more progressive than the Australian Labor Party, um, even though they're still basically centrist. They're like much more progressive centrist than the Australian Labor Party is. Hmm. Um, but the New Electoral Zealand Green- politics, where from you can get it, therefore then- take it. Yeah. Uh, the Greens also did very well in this election. Um, not quite as well as the Greens in the ACT election, but they did well. And um, the right-wing nationals and the very far-right-wing New Zealand first parties did really, really, really badly. And so that's part of the reason that I think the referendum's likely to pass, is that there was this like mm-hmm. massive progressive result, and yep. it wasn't really predicted by the polls. Uh, like, say, yeah, kind of, but like not really. So yeah, mm. I think it's it's pretty likely that it'll get up. Um, and interestingly, this referendum on cannabis was part of an agreement between Labour and the Greens uh, because Labour was in a minority government with a coalition with the Greens and New Zealand First, um, which is weird. It's like the Labour Party having a coalition with the Greens and Pauline Hanson. Um, yeah. But sure. Uh, and yeah, and the Greens did well and Labour did well th- at this election. So yeah, I think that it's likely that people will support the, the policy platform. Um, cool. Yeah. And, I hope you're and- right. Yeah, me too. And like, just briefly, what this bill would do: uh, medicinal cannabis is already legal in New Zealand. It, this has nothing to do with that. It's only about recreational use, uh, mm. and it would mean that a person aged twenty or over could buy up to fourteen grams of dried cannabis per day from licensed outlets. Fourteen grams per day is quite a lot. Uh, they can uh, <laughs> like have licensed premises, consume it on private property, or at licensed premises, grow up to two plants with a maximum of four per household, and share up to fourteen grams of dried cannabis or equivalent with another person aged twenty or over. There would be uh, health warnings on packaging, like plain packaging cigarettes, and at time of purchase. So they'll be like, when you buy it, they'll be like, you know, this can be bad for you, whatever. Um, and also in this proposed bill is more funding for health and social services and support for, uh, support for families and whanau, which I'm really sorry. I know very little about Maori culture and language. Um, uh, I'm trying to do my best to pronounce it. Uh, I embarrassed myself immensely by asking my pakeha, like my white, uh, New Zealand housemate, um, what's this word? It's like a Maori word. It's like wanau or something. And they were like, yeah, it's fono. And I was like, yeah, no, it's spelt with a WH. It means like family or something. And they're like, yeah, it's fono. And I was like, no, 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 it's WH. And they were like, dude, I could read Maori. It's, I know the word. It's fono. So anyway, I'm glad I checked I'm that before I went on the show. Yeah, yes. yeah, totally. But um, yeah, so... On that note, one of the major benefits of this bill is that if it goes through, um, is that Maori people are like vastly overrepresented, something like 35 yeah. times more uh, represented in arrests and charges for cannabis possession than they are in the population. Yeah. Um, so this bill would remove a big opportunity for racist policing. Uh, not that it would fix racist policing, but they couldn't do it based on this. 
yeah. as much anymore. Yeah. And it would also regulate production and supply and taxes and licensing for traders and growers and um, separating the production from the retail industry, which is interesting. Yeah. So it's basically a pretty normal, sensible policy. Weed legalization. Weed legalization. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's been really interesting because uh, it's, it's really been talked about a lot in New Zealand. And one of the people who's been out is former New Zealand Prime Minister, Labour Prime Minister Helen Clark. In July, she said this, Stop wasting our taxpayers' money with police helicopters hovering over the Kiwi bush handing ordinary citizens who are having a joint of cannabis rather than a glass of wine. So anyway, this isn't New Zealand snack pod. And um, so I want to talk about what's going on in Australia. Um, because weed nerds and sensible policy advocates alike are united in being mildly excited about the referendum in New Zealand and think it might Mm -hmm. have consequences in Australia. Um, So, yeah, as we kind of mentioned above, we are also world leaders in weed consumption. Um, And so there is quite a lot of, like, grassroots support for cannabis legalization. Um, But also, yeah, because of this New Zealand referendum, Adam Band has been out uh, spruking legalizing cannabis. (laughs) Um, uh, and has we been can go with sprucalizing. I like that. Sprucalizing, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's been for calling marijuana. on the uh, gov- government to to legalize it. I just paused there so you can play a little bit of Peter Tosh. Yeah, I know you won't, <laughs> but uh, you know. No, I can. You you find the clip for me, and I'll I'll all right, all I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll pop legalize it in. Legalize it. Yeah. Um, okay, a little so... peek behind the curtain, the process <laughs> for you guys. Yeah, so um, Adam Band said this. At the moment, only ideological blinkers have prevented the major parties from embracing recreational cannabis, but the tide is turning. And he also said some neolib bullshit about balancing the budget with weed tax, which, sure, that was something I was I spruked a lot when I was a very enthusiastic weed nerd who didn't understand politics. But yeah, I, I, I guess it's a useful thing to talk about to get it up. But yeah. It's one of those things that gets, a, gets it over the, the line with like, capitalists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of wanted to briefly talk about what the weed law situation in Australia is, um, and it's a bit complicated. So uh, it, it's illegal at a federal level to own any amount of cannabis. Uh, since 2016, medicinal cannabis products have been legal for people who have prescriptions, um, but they are very restricted and tend to be, in Australia, uh, manufactured in a way that you can't get high off them. Um, mm. So sure, whatever, that's fine. We're not really talking about medical marijuana in the slightest in this section. Uh, a spokesperson for Greg Hunt said it was, quote, predominantly a matter for the states and territories uh, about weed legalization. He's the, the health minister. However, last year, Christian Porter, the uh, attorney general, said repeatedly it was absolutely still a crime and that basically the state laws didn't matter. But that said, they clearly do matter. And uh, a bit of this, uh, most of this information comes from a surprisingly useful website called friendlyaussiebuds.com. Um <laughs> And they had a lot of information that was very, like, not stonily presented. Uh, so the short answer is that in most states, there's a line at 50 grams, below which it's assumed that you have put for personal use, and above that, you're a trafficker or a dealer or something. Uh, yeah. Some are much more forgiving, some are much less forgiving. Uh, I don't know if it's really worth going through all of the states and territories right now. Maybe I'll just put a link to Friendly Aussie Buds in the in the show notes, and you can go check out check what the laws are in, in your state and territory. Yeah. Yeah, but um, some interesting. Essentially, it's it's you know, the 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 headline is it's illegal to possess it, and more than fifty grams, it's like very illegal to possess it. Exactly, and th- there are two states that I do want to mention because they're the ones that people think of as being like weed is legal ish. There, 
Um, so those are the uh, ACT and South Australia. So in the ACT, they're a territory, not a state. So they don't actually have state laws per se, and they don't have state police. All of the police in the ACT are federal cops. And so the the law in the Australian Capital Territory say that you're uh, that that cannabis consumption and growing and so on is a uh, like civil offence. It's like a parking fine. And so so you can get a ticket. You might get sent to rehab or something, or you might um, have to do some community service, or you might have to pay a two hundred dollar fine. But yeah, it's basically according to the territory laws, it's like a small civil offence. But by the federal laws, it's uh, a huge illegal schedule one drug crime. Mm. And so the cops, Ridiculous. being federal cops, can basically choose whether to enforce the local law by letting you blaze or the federal law by putting you in jail for up to eight years. Um, so obviously that is a pretty <laughs> I love police discretion. amount of discretion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And of, of course, that's obviously used in extraordinarily racist ways. Um, but that said... If you don't piss the cops off, you're more or less fine to have some weed in Canberra. So in South Australia, it's base. It, it, it's very similar. When you say that, don't piss the cops off, you mean by the nature of your existence? Yeah, don't be visibly <laughs> queer or uh, not white. Not white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. While four twenty blaze it. Yeah, white um, boy. So in in South Australia. Um, again, it's basically illegal, but instead of being a criminal offense, it's a civil offense. So you get a couple hundred dollars of fines for like possession up to a hundred grams or something like that. So those are the two states where it's quote unquote legal. Uh, well, they're actually, it's decriminalized and I'm going to get into decriminalized versus legalized in a minute because I think that's an interesting discussion. Yeah. And, and, um, for the first time in 2019, the national drug strategy household survey showed that more Australians now support legalization than oppose it. There's 41 in favor versus 37 against. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And in Victoria, Fiona Patton is chairing an inquiry into cannabis use in Victoria. And most of the terms of reference are like, how can we make sure the kids don't smoke the devil's lettuce? But one of them is, uh, it further requires the committee to assess models from international jurisdictions that have been successful in achieving these outcomes and consider how they may be adapted for Victoria. Which is to say, basically, like, look at New Zealand, look at California, look at Portugal, and see which of the models for drug reform of whatever sort are the best for stopping people using it, Um, which is interesting and, like, a kind of shitty angle to approach it from. But, like, Fiona Patton, I think, is probably a reasonably good person to be chairing this inquiry, and hopefully she'll steer it in the right direction. And I looked at the submissions, some of the submissions. They're very funny. Something like 80% of them are from Name Withheld, uh, being like, hey, man, it's a natural plant, dude. Um, (laughs) It just grows like that. Yeah. Would you say that cabbages are a crime, man? Um, but then a couple of from people who have names being like, smoking the marijuana makes you a serial killer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was this one that I quite liked. Uh, this was the entire submission. From my experience, I believe cannabis should only be required for specific medical conditions as if it was legalized for all, it would compromise the safety of the public and our society as a whole. Yeah, a bit, one line you hear a lot is that traffic accidents go up, go up when weed is legalized. But you know what else is really bad for traffic accidents? Alcohol. Shit is extremely fucking legal. And, like, we police the way that people drive when under the influence of drugs already. I, I just don't True. think that yeah, that's yeah. a particularly compelling argument at all. Yep. Otherwise, if you're talking about public 
safety. I mean, I don't know. You think about people falling over more because they're high. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that joke by that Canadian stand-up comic who was like, um, "Oh man, I got done for driving while high the other day. A cop pulled me over and he said, "Sir, can you get out of the car?" And I got out and he threw a pack of Doritos and a Twinkie on the ground and. Then when I grabbed them both, he arrested me. Something along those lines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought the punchline was going to be, I was going 40 miles an hour under the speed limit. I um, think that he also made that joke. Yeah. <laughs> Do they use yeah. miles or kilometers in Canada? It's, uh, surely it's kilometers. They're a colony. Yeah. So all of this kind of leads up to there's some discussion and movement in Australia and around the world towards weed legalization or decriminalization. Mm. So what would a good weed policy suite look like? And I would like to quote uh, policy wonk Serge Tankian of uh, Think Tank System, System of, a, of Down, a Down, who said this, All research and successful drug policies show that treatment should be increased and law enforcement decreased while abolishing mandatory minimum sentences. It's a snappy lyric. And it's true. Um, yeah, yeah, still and- relevant. All of our cultural, all of our pop cultural references are still relevant between the years two thousand two thousand and ten. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I also want to say that this basically applies for all drugs, not just weed. But we're talking about weed because of New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, and because, like, if you're talking about legalization or decriminalization of drugs, it's the first one on the list. Yes, exactly. It's the most palatable one. Yeah. yeah, most and- likely to actually get over the line. And so that's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, is there some kind of potentially realistic roadmap to it happening? I mean, the, the short answer is not exactly. Um, yeah. I think what's likely to happen is that the states will slowly liberalize their weed situation and the feds will basically give up policing it. And then at some point it will be federally legalized. And that's basically what's happening in the US, but they're well ahead of yeah. us. But anyway, yeah. So the... Two kind of main options are decriminalization and legalization, and they sound like what they—they they are what they sound like. Decriminalization is basically what's happened in South Australia. It's no longer like a criminal offence, but you still get fines instead of jail time. Uh, and legalization is basically the situation with alcohol or tobacco. It's a legal item that's regulated or not, just like any other industry. Um, and I got to say, decriminalization seems kind of silly. To me, uh, one thing that people often talk about, and I've mentioned already, is the Portuguese model, uh, which is a decriminalization model, and it is huge because they did it for all substances, not just weed. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, I think if the option is between like criminalization and decriminalization, the decriminalization is obviously a better option, but I think legalization is the best one. And I just want to do a little quick sidebar. This is also a debate about how to legislate around sex work, uh, which I am vastly less well-informed about, and maybe we'll talk about it sometime in the future, but please don't take me talking about legalization and decriminalization of drugs as an endorsement for some position about sex work or other criminalized industries, which, again, I don't really know much about and don't want to comment on here. So little little qualifier sidebar yeah, there. we should yeah. definitely get someone on who knows about that too. 100%, yeah, 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 I would love that. All right, so, yeah, decriminalization... Um, Normally, uh, in Portugal, it's basically a way to funnel people into rehab programs and other kind of uh, drug and alcohol treatment programs. Um, but yeah, you can also get fines, criminal, criminal, uh, sorry, uh, community service, and so on. So it, mm-hmm. it's basically like you shouldn't be doing that. 
legalization, however, there, there are two main models, the commercial model and the non-commercial model. I mean, wow, who came up with those names? Some, some genius marketer. Uh, the commercial model is like in Colorado or in Amsterdam. You can buy, sell, grow, manufacture goods out of and consume weed within some limits, much in the same way that alcohol is in Australia. Like you can't just like rip bongs in the street, but you can if you go to a coffee shop or whatever. So that's commercial. It's just like it's a pub. Yeah. Uh, non-commercial is uh, there's uh, how it's been done in Uruguay, which I didn't actually know about this. But in Uruguay, you can buy a small amount of weed from pharmacies only and only up to a certain amount each month. Um, and so the idea there is kind of to make it not fun at all. And like, yes, you can go and do it, but it's not like fun night out at the pub smoking blunts with my pals. It's like, yes, Taking I all like... the fun of the free market out of it. Oh, geez. Exactly. Yeah. And then there are hybrid models like California, uh, which, as most rap songs will tell you, you just need a very easily available doctor's certificate saying you have cataracts. And then you can buy just, like, huge amounts of, like, dank, ultra-rhino, kush, chocolate, lagoon, whatever bullshit. Um, which Damn, we've got a real weed connoisseur here. we got a real <laughs> weed expert. You know um, about all those strains. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, I used to be such a weed nerd. I'm so over it now. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, and so, so like the in California, the dispensaries are meant to be like pharmacies. It's meant to be this like uh, non-commercial kind of thing. But mm. in practice, you can go to any doctor, and they will be like, "Try this dank Kush. It gets you blazed as fuck." Uh, yeah, and so like personally, I think the non-commercial one is probably the best for public health. Uh, but the commercial option is the one that's the the most fun and involves treating people with the most respect as like autonomous decision makers. Uh, like we don't make people buy small 28 mil prepackaged shots of tequila at the pharmacy. So I'm not sure why we should do that with weed. Um, we probably should. You're thinking about yeah, I mean, safety. maybe we should. Yeah. I mean, in, in Israel... <laughs> we obviously can... shouldn't do that. That's not what we're endorsing. Let's just no, make that no. clear. <laughs> Where in Israel, you can buy like little prepackaged, like, you know, those ultra heat treated milk Mm. things that but vodka shots at literally every like uh you know like grocery store petrol station yeah they sell a lot like of booze at petrol stations here. in israel uh, mm, uh, troubling um yeah <laughs> but definitely at the at the counter at the bottler when you go up you know they've always got some discounted like off-brand Bailey's shots, but they're purple. True. And like, <laughs> I was like, you want these for five bucks? Like, hell no. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so those, those are kind of the options. And I think, you know, what I would like to see is a full legalized commercial model, probably, or like some kind of hybrid model. Um, the hybrid model seems kind of silly because it seems mostly like an excuse to the legislators to like... Oh no! This is a medical thing. Everyone in the country has cataracts, um, rather yeah, than actually this, being like a this, sensible like, policy option. Right? It's 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 hedging your bets morally, right? Like it's the brown paper bag in the wire. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's very brown paper bag, and I just really think that we can move past the need for it. I mean, it yeah, obviously, yeah. you know, you and I run in certain circles, but mm-hmm. like the idea of smoking a weed smoking a weed being in any way like uh stigmatized a huge problem or yeah i don't know i mean like obviously politicians themselves run in extremely different circles yeah like, yeah where weed is fucked and coke is normal. is the the thing to do yeah mm. exactly like why would you take down is we need to go all night and you know develop some terrible legislation policy. that yeah. exactly that uh, <laughs> we need to criminalize other drugs more um 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just I think that I guess morally and socially, it, it clearly based on the numbers that you said in terms of usage, but also you know approval of mm. weed usage uh, in Australia or New Zealand. Like, no one gives a fuck. You, yeah, like yeah. our our legislation is just so far behind where everyday people are at. Mm. Um, mm. So it's kind of frustrating, but you know, it, it seems like. I mean, it's obviously positive to see this movement happening next door and soon we'll have something very concrete to point at being like, see, this isn't Mm. a disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe true, but like it's also been legal in the US for fucking forever. There have been other examples. Uh, And yeah, like I I said this before and I, I don't actually think this New Zealand thing is going to be such a big game changer in Australia. Unfortunately, it might get talked about a bit more, but I don't actually see that much political appetite from the major parties, especially at a federal level. I feel like yeah. neither of them feel like they have anything to gain by pushing this barrow one way or the other. And at the state level, I think it's a lot more likely to keep progressing. Um, and then it's going to be a matter of how the feds decide to respond to that. Yeah, and, and I suspect we'll end up seeing something similar in the U.S. where it's functionally legal basically everywhere, and then at some point the federal laws will change to match that. Sort of disappointing as as an outcome for this story, but yeah. All right, cool. Thank you very much for that thorough breakdown, Noon. Um, no worries. Yeah, uh, I mean, the outlook isn't, like, particularly rosy, Um <laughs> Yeah. On, the, on this issue at the moment, I guess, but as you say, like looks like things will naturally just in- incrementally get slightly better over time. Um, I mean, that's the liberal dream, right? That's the only hope that they are capable of having. So, I guess so I'll hop on board that. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our business. But remember, we do have our new segment at the very end of the show, the pup date, where we tell you what's been going on with our gorgeous doggos. So make sure to but sit through our spooking there, the rest of our stuff to hear yeah, about that. Yeah, uh, spookalizing. Make sure that you rate and review us. <laughs> Make sure you rate and review us wherever you can. On Apple Podcasts is probably the most helpful place to do it, but anywhere else you could find to leave a positive comment or five stars would be super appreciated. Um, We've got so many on- new Patreons this week, which is lovely. But patrons, if you guys haven't dropped us a review, please do, because that's another awesome way that you can help us out um, that doesn't cost you additional dollars, but also... If you like the show and you do want to send us some dollars, you can hop over to patreon.com forward slash ospolsnackpod and give us a buck. Get a bonus episode a month this week. Uh, this month, we talked about Southland Tales, uh, a uh, a show that goes nicely with the more weed brownies theme for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Deeply confusing movie. Uh, we had a great time talking about it. Um, and otherwise, yeah, follow us on all your socials at uh, ospolsnackpod. You can find us. Uh, cool. Now it's time for a all right. What's you, Bagel been up to this week? Well, very excitingly, uh, a friend of a friend of mine has who, who lives just around the corner from us has been sort of missing dogs and wanted some dog time. Uh, Kato, her name is, and she came around to meet him and take him for a walk. So we, we he, she came around earlier this week. We went for a little practice walk, introduced her to Bagel and like showed her the whole the whole situation. And then yesterday she came around and walked him by herself. Um, oh, and wow. they Yeah. Uh, <laughs> As they left the back gate, two off-leash dogs walked up to them, which is oh, like geez. 
that's the worst possible start. But she dealt with yes. it super well. I was kind of, she was facing away from me, and I was like gesturing, like come back in and like wait until I've gone or whatever. But she didn't. She just like grabbed Bagel and walked off and dealt with it very well. So yeah, apparently nice. they had a good walk. There are a couple of incidents that they d- both dealt with well. So that's lovely. Excellent. Great news. Shout out to Kato. Um. Over in Dante land, uh, Holly pointed something out to me this week that I had kind of been vaguely aware of but hadn't quite registered, which is that Dante thinks he's too good for our backyard. Um, uh-huh. Oh, you wrote in the notes here, too snooty yeah. for backyard, and I assumed this was going to be about him snuffling no, with his different snoot kind of in snooty. some way. No, no, no. Yeah, he turns okay, his nose yeah, up yeah. Mm. at our backyard, not down into uh, the backyard. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we moved into this place like almost a year ago now, and the place we lived mm. in before had a much more sizable garden, and Dante and I would go out there and often play tug or throw the ball around, um, you know, chase each other and have yep. a good time. Uh, and he just won't do it in this place, which has like a smaller backyard, huh. but it's just still got some a backyard. Space. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he's just like, like he'll like listlessly tug at the rope a little bit and be like, nah, I don't know. It's not the same, man. And, <laughs> it's not really my yeah, thing. Yeah, and just kind of like walk around and go inside. And like before it would be like, he would never walk away from a game of tug. Um, yeah, so, wow. That's really yeah, interesting. He's just like... I, I think of this really as just like a year-long partial sulk, essentially, where he's like, I still remember when I had twice as much space as this, and I'm not going to play in this bullshit backyard. The fuck is this? That's basically his attitude, as far as I can tell. Uh, so that's what he's up to. Well, he knows what he likes. He does, he does. And he knows how to sulk constantly and for months at a time. Mm. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you very much, everybody, cool. for tuning in. Uh as always, we really appreciate you listening and appreciate your support. And um, until next week, make sure you keep on snacking in the free world. Lights out, snack radio. Turn that shit off. <laughs>